listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Monday, July 13th. We are recording this in Seoul, and I'm joined in the studio by NK News bossman Chad O'Carroll and intrepid reporter Jongmin Kim, and we are talking about their long-form investigative piece published on July 2nd titled Left Behind. Despite detente, six South Koreans remain imprisoned in the North. If you are a subscriber to our website and you haven't yet read this article, I would encourage you to go back and read it. If you are not a subscriber yet, I would ask, why not? And say that you'll get much more value out of this podcast if you've read the article. <laughs> Chad's enjoying that. Very, very true. Thank you for joining me, Chad and Jongmin. Morning. Yep. Good morning. Apologies to listeners for my slightly echoey voice. I'm using a different kind of microphone than my colleagues here. Uh, but, you know, that that's a, uh, it's all going to be fixed very soon. So... Uh, how long did you spend working on this investigation, Chad? It's a long, it's a huge story. Yeah, I think maybe three months, two and a half months, something like that, three months. I I had been thinking about doing it because I happened to be looking at some old NK News articles and I saw that five years ago, roughly, it had been the anniversary of, of two of these detainees uh, sentencing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that will make a good... Uh, you know, date for aiming for some kind of public uh, investigation. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself because there's going to be significant research in Korean. Um, and so I asked Jongmin if she would uh, partner with me on it. And she said yes. And and then we sort of, you know, met people over those months to find out more and studied up on all the state media reporting and, and uh, yeah. Now, John, when obviously, uh, you know, you're a reporter, you work for Chad, you have to do what he tells you. But was it an interesting story for you? <laughs> did you did you get into it? Yeah, actually, I really enjoyed talking to the family and the representatives of the detainees. Um, I did read South Korean media reportings before about them, but then after talking to them, I realized that they cherry-picked what they mm. had to say to the reporters. And I honestly wanted to just release the whole transcript if it's possible. So that's why I'm here. Ah, okay. Now, uh, let's sort of set the scene. Um, how many non-Korean citizens do we currently know of who are detained or imprisoned uh, in North Korea? Yeah, so there are at least four Japanese abductees which are still officially recognized by Tokyo that the DPRK is kind of reticent to talk about. Um, there are thought to be dozens more, uh, but North Korea denies any of those exist. And there were three Korean Americans until 2018. They were released in, in uh, May of that year, or May, May or June, I think it was May. But besides that, that that's basically it. As far as we know, unless there are, you know, perhaps some Russian or Chinese fishermen that may be detained that never made it into state media. But right now, it's all we know for sure are those who were abducted from Japan. Okay, so there's no uh, tourists or former tourists currently in detention in North Korea that we know of. No. And um, there's another like couple of people who are known among the Christian community that are Chinese Korean missionaries. Uh, so the the, the mm. Joseon Jok group, yeah, and they're also uh, imprisoned in North Korea. Okay, that's not confirmed though. Not confirmed. Now the uh, the article title that I just read sort of gave the game away a little bit that there are six detainees. Um, of course, your article says that there may even in fact be seven. That there's kind of a, a seventh you're not sure about. 
So, John, when could you give us a little bit about the, the names and, and a little info on the background of each of these six men? Sure. First is Kim Jong-uk. He was detained in October 2013 and sentenced to a life hard labor in May 2014. Um, he was charged with spying and illegal entry to North Korea and also anti-state activities like propaganda and agitation. Um, the second two are Che Chun-gil and Kim Kuk-ki. They were in the same press conference after they were detained. They were sentenced to hard labor also, also in June 2015. The charges were similar, state subversion, espionage, and illegal crossing of the border, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the anti-DPRK activities um, mm. charges upon them. So these are three. And then there's the fourth one, who is the only defector known among the ones that are detained and reported by state media, which is Ko Hyun Chul. Um, he's also known to be a missionary, and he was charged of um, allegedly trying to abduct mm-hmm. North Korean children outside um, into South Korea or something. And then there are two who are not confirmed by state media, which is first defector Park, which the Ministry of Unification confirmed to us before. And also Kim Won-ho is also new, known to be a defector and a missionary. And there's Ham Jin-woo, um, who da- whom Daily and K reported on, that um, Ham was their former reporter, and ah. that Ham went to China-North Korea border for reporting issue or business, and then he was gone. So it was an alleged kidnap. Now, Ham, Ham rather, uh, is the one who's not... Confirmed, is that right? He's the possible seventh. Right. Even Park that the MOU confirmed in a press release or press conference uh, several years ago, someone in MOU was telling me that they don't consider him part of those six. So they, it mm. there is you know some dispute about who the others are the thing is the north korean state media have only mentioned four right right kim kim jong-uk che chungil kim Gukki, and ko hyun-chul those four are the ones that are confirmed okay the the other two although we included as mm-hmm. the missing six it's still a bit there's a confusion about, uh, about that because yeah. sometimes it's hard to verify whether or not someone went to North Korea voluntarily or not. Now, um, do we know if they're all still alive? No, we don't. You know, the, one of the, the key things that I think is really important about this story is that we all we know from the like over a dozen interviews now with those uh, foreigners who have been detained in North Korea that they're generally kept in quite good uh, conditions. So tourists, uh, people like Kenneth Bay, uh, um, they're basically kept in a, a kind of like international detainee guest house. Mm. Oftentimes, some are even just kept in hotel, like for example, Miles, who you interviewed in, in December, the American guy that swam nice. across the river. Basically, those conditions are kept set like separate from where normal North Koreans are kept. And I remember... I think it was Andre Lankov who first t- speculated to me that he thinks the reason they do this is so that basically when these people are released, they don't have any horror stories mm. to share with the outside world about extremely grim prison conditions, which, which the North Korean, which would kind of prove what all these human rights groups say is the case that uh, the, these kind of penal colonies are really bad and uh, and so on. I forget the name now, though. There was one American detainee who claimed something in the area of sexual torture Robert park yeah he he never actually specified spe- exactly what happened but 
Yeah, I, I don't know what that was. The thing, maybe Jongmin, you can add something here because I remember you interviewed Kenneth Bay and he had some serious questions about the potential health right. of so these guys. Kenneth Bay, I, I talked to him. Well, actually, so before you get into that, when was the last proof of life of any of these six men that, that we know of? The last I could find was Korean language state media just references... I mean, I guess that's not proof. No. I mean, I guess the last proof was their sentencing, right? Right, the press conference that they did. And that was... Well, that's it. That's five years ago now? Yep. And wow. then there are unconfirmed um, reports about their health. Most of them... I didn't include that in the article because we couldn't verify it, but there is someone named Peter Jung, who is a missionary who deals with North Korea issues, and he was telling the families of the detainees that they are in a very bad health. Oh, boy. Okay, so tell us what what Kenneth Bay said then, uh, Jungmin. Right, so he is in South Korea actually right now doing oh. yeah missionary work and taking care of North Korean refugees and all that after all what happened to him mm. in North Korea, which is quite um, admirable. He says that um, when he was detained in North Korea, he was... Once he was sick and he was sent to like foreigner only hospital as well, um, even when it was a foreigner only detainee facility, he still had to do hard labor and all that. And he still has all these back issues and he has to go through surgeries and all that mm. after staying there for compared to other detainees. He only stayed there for like a, like a year and a half or something. So it's Gosh. right. And he's telling me that when he asked the North Korean guards whether Chechungil or Kimguki are coming to the same facility, they were like, no, they're South Koreans, which means. So they get different treatment. Right. So another complication to this is that North Koreans, under their um, worldview of South Korea and North Korea, the South Koreans across the border, they mm -hmm. are considered Koreans. Like under their law. Right, because both Koreas claim sovereignty over the entire Korean peninsula. Exactly. So I guess so a South Korean who goes to North Korea um, without the North Korean state's approval is simply a law-breaking Korean citizen. Exactly. And will be treated as any other law-breaking North Korean citizen. Right. And so what so what's here what he is thinking, what he thought was that if they are they're considered just the same as North Koreans and sent to these facilities where North Koreans are, it would be very hard for them to stay alive until five years because mm -hmm. the, the treatment is very, very harsh. Yeah. Okay, so so we don't have any proof of life. We haven't really heard any details of them um, for the last five years. The, the longest one has been in for seven years. Is that right, Jongmin? Right. And the the one who's been there the shortest time out of all of them, the seven, including Mr. Hum. That'd be Defective Park, uh, I think. Right. And I only say that because MOU confirmed the identity of him in December 2017. Right during the height of the uh, the fire and fury time. Mm -hmm. That's apparently when he went. Okay. Uh, now, big question. There's not been much media or government attention given publicly to discussing these six men or making a big noise about their imprisonment or trying to get, that, get them out on the part of the South Korean government. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so um, we can split this into two parts, media and government. Mm -hmm. um, I think the media aspect is, for me, really interesting because anytime a Westerner is, and, I, and I, unfortunately, it's normally, in fact, it's only when it's a white Westerner. If, if, if a Korean American is detained, this doesn't really happen. But when white Westerners are detained, it becomes a huge story and you see lots of pickup, especially if they're American. It will dominate the news cycle for a while. 
And uh, you, you saw the with Otto Warmbier. I mean, everybody knows that guy's name. In contrast, and then when you see the Korean American detainees, there were three of them um, uh, released in 2018. Very in comparison, very little uh, media attention. And then when you look at South Korean detainees from the Western news cycle, there is very low interest now. Usually, I'll, I'll be quite transparent about this. If we do a big investigation, we'll, you know, we'll get thousands of hits. Usually, this investigation, we, when we press publish, I think at the end of a week, only about five hundred people had looked at it. It 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 performed badly, and and I think that also reflects the you know even amongst our specialist readers, people just don't seem to care about this issue. Now, I think we we spoke to a, a an intel source, um, and he said that one of the issues is this peninsula. There is a decades-long unresolved war. There have been hundreds of abductions, prisoners of war situations that have been unresolved. Uh, you've had Koreans going across the border every few months for one reason or another, be they remains that are being repatriated, be they um, prisoners being sent one way or another. And so within that mix, the this doesn't stand out. I, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with that. But... The, the on the government side I, th I think this is partly why it's not an issue in the media on the one hand the family members of these detainees just simply mostly don't talk they're, they're very very hard to get hold of and then you think about the family members of these americans that have been detained they'd be they'll be doing interviews going on fox etc um for some reason people don't want to talk do you think um, that's their own decision or do you think they're being i think encouraged we, not to talk I think we should come on to that later, but I think they're being encouraged not to talk. And then the, there's political uh, reticence under the Moon administration. I mean, when I was looking into how the Puck and Hay government dealt with this, they, uh, after these gentlemen were sentenced, there were several calls by the MOU to uh, foreign countries with embassies in Pyongyang to raise the issue with their counterparts. I know of diplomats who said that they were contacted by South Korea to try and raise the issue. Um, and we saw, you know, condemnation publicly by the Park Geun-hye government, but the Moon government was extremely quiet about it. And uh, one informed source told me that they basically didn't want to deal with this because they thought it would get in the way of big ticket diplomacy with the US and denuclearization, etc. Right. So um, one thing is the South Korean public's uh, view of these detainees. I actually talked to like people who are not interested in North Korea issue itself to get a hold of what they think of the, mm. if they know about these six people. Usually they don't. And when they, when I explained this about, explain the situation to them, they're like, oh, but they were not supposed to go there. So for the family member, it's all too hard to talk about it mm. like a human rights aspect or whatnot, like the Westerners do, because they sort of have like a, it's complicated for them to talk about it because they do know as well that if they were not missionaries, they wouldn't. There wouldn't be any other justifications for them um, of going into North Korea, which is banned. So you're saying that the um, the attitude of South Korean people who are not normally interested in North Korean uh, issues, mm. uh, that their attitude is these men brought it upon themselves by going to North Korea. Mm, yeah, but they shouldn't have gone there, and it's their fault for going there. Many of them, like, I, I shouldn't say, like, most South Koreans because there's a limit of number of people I talk to, but right. most of the people I've talked to, they yeah. were like that. And also the government side, there are people who are talking about this issue, like mm -hmm. one conservative lawmaker who keeps talking about Ham Jinu. The um, one who's not confirmed. Right. 
but it's it's like politics and it's not being raised that much in National Assembly. Now, I suppose I probably already know the answer before asking it, but uh, I need to ask, you know, President Moon Jae-in, he was, uh, he's famous for being a human rights lawyer. He's met with Kim Jong-un three times, um, at least. No, four now. Has he mentioned, as far as we know, has he mentioned any of these men in any of those meetings? Yeah, so uh, on the April 27th Panmunjom summit, uh, which was took place in 2018, the South Korean government belatedly said that they had raised this issue with Kim Jong-un, but they didn't share his response. Mm. And I think if you look at the timeline, this was probably an addendum to a much more important request. Um, So April 2018, we had this sort of uh, initial signs of Trump's interests uh, in meeting with Moon. That was becoming a kind of potential possibility. And there was still a big stumbling block between DPRK-US relations, which was these three Korean-American detainees. So I would, I suspect what happened was that President Moon said, look, Kim, you've got to release these three Korean-Americans if you want any chance of like moving forward with DPRK-US diplomacy. Oh, and by the way, we've got some guys we'd love to see you released as well. Interestingly, within a month, the North Koreans were releasing those Korean Americans, mm. but nothing on the South Korean front. They just got forgotten about. And it hasn't been raised in any summit or uh, into Korean communication since. We just see the MOU and MOFA telling us that they continue to call on, I think, and just public rhetoric um, for them to be released. But Did North Korean state media mention anything about any of the men after the uh, April uh, Panmunjom summit of 2018? Mm-mm, no, no. So, because that would be, I, I suppose, one way of signalling, you know, uh, yes or no, or or forget about it. Um, why do you think it is that the uh, the North Korean state media has only reported about four of these seven men? Well, one possible scenario is that these four were actually somehow involved in intelligence work, willing or not willing, um, knowing or unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, these four were all charged of. Um, charges that are related to working for the infor- in intelligence services for South Korea or United States for for the two or three that were unknown, we just know that they were missionaries. Just another thing to add, though, I think one of the other reasons the others have not been mentioned is they're thought to be defectors. Yeah. Um, and that may... You mean from North Korea to South Korea? Yeah, and we don't normally hear of defectors going back unless they... Uh, wanted to go back. So, nor- normally, North Korean state media makes a big show and dance about those, but um, yeah, it might just be one of the other reasons. Okay, so we have uh, the first one, Kim Jong-uk, who, uh, as Jong-min said, was a missionary. He was running churches in Dandong, which is just across the river from Shiniju in uh, northeast China. Uh, those churches are known as underground churches, so they're not legally allowed or recognized by the Chinese government. Uh, and Kim Jong-uk was first detained in North Korea in October 2013, so it's almost seven years ago, and then sentenced to a life of hard labor in May 2014, so all, just a bit over six years ago. Uh, and the, uh, the charges were spying, anti-state activities, and illegal entry to North Korea. What have uh, Kim's family uh, in South Korea said, John, when you've spoken to them? So there are some truth to the KCNA reporting. Many of 
the people I talked to, they were like, oh, it's a liar. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I talked to the brother of Kim Jong-uk, he said that the part where they talk about the timing of them visiting South Korea was actually true. They were there like right before Chuseok. And I remember him telling me... So, so Kim, and his, Kim Jong-uk and his brother right. were both in China. No, both in South Korea. Based in China. And they were visiting South Korea for the Chuseok holiday. No, so Sorry. the brother never was in China, okay. but he was in South Korea. He's a businessman in China. And then Kim Jong-uk, who was the detainee, mm-hmm. for some reason visited South Korea and called the brother saying, hey, bro, I'm in I'm in Seoul. Okay. And can, do you want to meet up? And then um, the Kim Jong-uk, the detainee, didn't tell him why he was here. Mm. But the timing, which KCNA referred to as Kim Jong-uk visiting South Korea to meet with NIS agents. NIS is the National Intelligence Service. That's the South Korean spying agency. Yes, thank you. So the timing itself matches, but then the brother says that although it's reasonable to think that the NIS would have contacted him for some information or whatnot, um, he insisted that he was just doing missionary work and all that, and that he visited South Korea to ask him about how to run a factory in Tandong mm. and those technical issues. Do we know what kind of factory? It was a noodle factory. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't include that in the article, but... Um, like ramen. Just kukso. So he ran a noodle factory because he wanted to produce something for the North Korean people who were going back to North Korea and to give as a gift. Mm, to so, take with them. Right. Okay. So he started creating, like, producing noodle and then he visited South Korea and met his brother who was running a factory mm. to ask him like how, what is a better way to produce and pack these noodles during right. like summertime. And then it, it gets really weird because... Um, Sometime before his detention in 2013, he met a North Korean lady in Dandong called Miss Kim. Mm-hmm. Uh, she apparently wanted to sell was a... Was she a North Korean who had fled from North no, no, Korea no, no. or who was allowed to travel she back and forth? She was allowed to travel. And she was wanting to sell a Corio Celadon worth a million dollars. Oh, an antique? Yeah. Oh. And um, after meeting uh, with her several times, he apparently, Mr. Kim called his NIS section chief Han Ji-min, so very detailed, and um, revealed his plan to go there um, and was apparently, basically, it seems, invited into North Korea, successfully entered the country, crossed from Dandong by boat. Miss Kim picked him up to drive him down to Pyongyang. Somehow they they wound up in uh, the outskirts of Pyongyang in the Rangnang district at around 4.40 a.m. and there was a security detail that picked them up there. And that was how he was detained. They don't specify. They just said he crossed on a boat. But I presume, I mean, if you're, if you're going to get to Sinuju and then hop in a car, you would either have to be really stupid, not, I mean, to assume that you're not going to be pulled over along the way. Right, or really sure. Or really, yeah. Um, like or some high-level invite or yeah, something. Right, some sort of paperwork. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it does sound like he was enticed deliberately that was into a case the country with Kinguki, yeah right? yeah that also happened but um yeah i mean they're not when you read the north korean state media stuff they're extremely detailed like, they specify nis officials by name riyong chol and hanji min mm, w- um, have we been able to track anything about any of those two no no i mean i would expect nis officials to be using fake yeah. names in that area anyway 
Um, and it's possible they were actually not NIS, but rather, you know, missionary type people who were, were helping. But again, we can come on to the NIS stuff later, I think. But yeah, and he was apparently caught with, uh, you know, secret cameras, uh, 40 pornographic movie discs, uh, 100 MP3s containing films. I don't think the North Koreans understand MP3s. They can't contain films. But lots of detail and uh, he was he was sentenced and interestingly at the the court case he would they, they wanted to give him death sentence but the North Korean court gave him a uh, defense lawyer who successfully got that toned down to life with hard labor life with hard labor and I in in the process of uh, this investigation I spoke to the Argentine based UN human rights uh, rapporteur. rapporteur and he pointed out that the fact that they were giving defense lawyers mm. was in an indication that there, there was some due process here that, that, that and, and that he actually said that that should be even if it seemed to be a kangaroo court it should be recognized at least that they did do that did uh, Kim Jong-uk at any stage perhaps at the trial or at a press conference confess to any of the charges they confessed to all of the charges that North Korea alleged him so when you say they, you mean uh, all four of the uh, the jailed men or, or just Kim Jong-uk? They all confessed. They all confessed. Okay. So let's look at the, the next two then, that, uh, often mentioned together. Kim Guk-gi and Che Chun-gil, who are both also missionaries, uh, were sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor in June 2015, so just over five years ago, uh, and confessed to crimes of spying uh, in detail before their trial. What can you tell us about what they were supposed to have done, Jong-min? When it comes to Kim Guk-gi... Uh, among the two, I talked to the representative of the family. He obviously met with Kim Guk-gi. He met with Kim Guk-gi right before he was detained in spring. And he says that he never mentioned anything about the NIS or any South Korean intelligence works. And But a weird thing about meeting Kim Guk-gi at the time was that he talked about being invited by a high-level North Korean North Korean official into North Korea, hmm. and then Kang Jong Shik, which is another pastor that I talked to, he said he talked he talked to Kim Guk-gi like, "What are you talking about? How are you supposed to go into North Korea?" Yeah. And then Kim Guk-gi was like, "Oh, I was invited, and I wanted I always wanted to go to North Korea and do missionary work, blah blah blah." Um, so, so we have once again this idea of a high-level invitation from somebody right. in North Korea. So mm. Pastor Kang was saying it sounds like a kidnap rather than just him willingly walking into it well yeah kim kim Kuk-gi, basically he was i'd say the most serious thing he was charged with was in august 2010 uh he'd apparently learned that kim jong-il would be passing through a particular train station on the way to china for one of the several chinese uh delegation tours that kim jong-il did that year um and apparently uh kim shared that information um, with uh, South Korean intelligence services. He was also tasked with uh, looking into... Oh, yeah, this was really interesting. He, he apparently um, was distributing, quote, copies of literature, including dozens of cartoon books, amusement CD and SD cards defaming the authority of the supreme leadership, leaflets, blah, blah, blah. And do you know, that made me... The, the, the mention of cartoons made me think of, do you remember that story I did about the cartoons online, the anti-North Korea cartoons? That may have been made by the NIS. Yeah, yeah. It, it really brought back my memory to that. Yeah. And Chechen Gear, he 
was reportedly ordered by the NIS to gather military secrets, which is interesting because he sent, quote-unquote, radium sample and a glass bottle of major elements, particles used in the defense field, and also asked his North Korean contacts to dig out and obtain earth around Yongbyon area, which our listeners would probably know about. Right, as the uh, location of North Korea's uh, uh, nuclear facility. Uh, how do you get a, a sample of radium in a glass vial? I don't know about the radium, but with the Yongbyon sample, they said that he collaborated with a North Korean by the surname of Ri who basically facilitated that. Uh, Yeah, Uh, there there was also talk of uh, yeah mass printing foreign currency, like counterfeit current Mm. counterfeit current foreign currency, (laughs) fake bills, and distributing (laughs) that. Um, I mean, they had a pretty big, like, long sheet of charges. To be honest, oh yeah, this was interesting. In the summer of 2012 ordered to photograph satellite dishes installed in Pyongyang-based foreign embassies and obtain a mobile phone uh, to use in North and South Hungary provinces. Mm. Um, so he was apparently collaborating with North Korea, actual North Koreans in the country to do some of this. Yeah, I, I, I just find the level of detail, once again, it's so... I mean, we, there were the, these charge sheets in North Korean state media are so long. And again, they mention... I think they mentioned almost 20 specific restaurants in Dandong where stuff happened. They actually had photos showing um, these guys. I think the North Koreans must have been taking undercover photos of them in Dandong uh, while they were up to quote-unquote no good. And there's um, also photographs in your article of, uh, of objects that they're supposed to have, that have been found on them, right? Am I remembering correctly? I Yeah, there, were, there was. Things that they smuggled into North Korea phones, or spying equipment SD or stuff. cards, yeah, secret watches with secret cameras in them, uh, some kind of backpacks with these long screwdrivers. I, I'm not entirely sure Very what that is. Very cloak and dagger stuff. Uh, then we have uh, Go Hyun Chol, who uh, at a press conference in North Korea in July 2016, he admitted to being in touch with a member of the NIS and apparently his mission was to kidnap North Korean orphans and bring them to South Korea. It sounds incredible, literally hard to believe. Jongwen, what do you make of it? So if we read the state media reporting of the press conference, it doesn't necessarily say that he was in touch with NIS agents themselves, but that someone he was talking to was ordered by NIS. Okay, so indirectly. Right. But still, I mean, the most incredible part is not that he was in touch with someone from the NIS, but this story about taking North Korean orphans from North Korea to South Korea. Uh, Why? (laughs) Right. So it's... Um, If we think about it from the perspective of human rights activists who think of getting defectors into South Korea from North Korea Mm -hmm. as something good for the human rights, like saving Mm. these people. I think that's what they were, if it's true, that's what they were trying to do, like group defection, um, which they um, refer to Susan Schultz and Chu Sung-ha and all the other human rights activists to have helped. We're normally used to uh, adults coming across and sometimes with children and then being brought to South Korea, but specifically a focus on North Korean orphans. That's an unusual... So, so the interesting thing, so um, the North Koreans did do another uh, open media press conference with, with Carl and mm. uh, AFP were there and um, he apparently said that he'd been, quote, uh, arranging the kidnapping of orphans from North Korea with the NIS promising to pay $10,000 for each abductee. Mm. That was something in my notes from the AFP reporting of it. Um, and they, this was just at the time 
You'll remember in April 2016, we had the restaurant workers yes. who were batch uh, defecting into South Korea. I do want to come back to the restaurant workers because they are an important element of the story. Um, so the, the four men that I've mentioned so far have been accused of uh, illegally crossing the border and entering North Korea. But there's some question about were they invited? Was it an attempt to kidnap them? I'm reminded also of um, the two American journalists, uh, Laura, Laura Ling, Ling and Una Lee, yeah. that they said that they were on the frozen river on the Chinese side of the line and were brought or dragged literally uh, into North Korea. Have we ever heard any uh, any South Koreans who were you know, nabbed in China and stuffed into a van or, or somehow brought unwillingly from China into North Korea? Is that uh, a possible scenario here? I mean, I think the closest to that is Kim Gook-gi and Choi Chong-gil. In the North Korean state media reporting, they specifically mentioned how that he'd been those two had been picked up near the border with China. It all sounded like either that they'd been cooperating with the Chinese or had done something undercover or had invited them in and nabbed them, basically. I also remember very vaguely, and this is a, a story much preceding your own uh, investigation, that in the early 2000s, maybe even the late 90s, but certainly in the early 2000s, there was a South Korean pastor with health problems, I think uh, diabetes and some other things, who uh, supposedly was nabbed in China and brought into uh, into North Korea uh, and held there for many years and who may have actually died there, if, if my memory is correct. Does that ring a bell with either of you? No. What Pastor Kang was talking about was that with like talking to people who have experience living in Tandong as missionaries, mm. there are Chinese security guards as well. And they were saying like, unless... They like North Korean guards are cooperating with Chinese security guards. It would be really hard to just nap them and just kidnap them in China. So somehow they would have gone somewhere very, very near border or thinking someone invited them and went into North Korea somehow. But I think uh, from memory, there is some kind of operational uh, liaison between the North Korean state security and the Chinese right. state security because when North Korean defectors are caught in China without identity cards and are sent back to North Korea, that's when those two agencies work together quite closely. So that it's not unheard of that uh, the two agencies work together. So it wouldn't surprise me too much. Um, and then we have two defectors, that is North Koreans who fled to South Korea, who became na nationalized, naturalized uh, South Korean citizens uh, with their own South Korean uh, passports and uh, citizen registration cards. And now they're imprisoned back in North Korea. They've not been mentioned in North Korean media and only one of them has been mentioned in South Korea, uh, South Korean media, and that's uh, Kim Won-ho and there's a man named Park that you talked about before. Does the North Korean government attempt to uh, to entice defectors to come back to North Korea? Yeah, it does. Um, under Kim Jong-un, this has been a new phenomena, and I think yeah, you had the numbers recently, isn't it? Like 30 right. or so? 20, 20? So 28 people under Kim Jong-un's regime um, went back to North Korea, but zero in 2018, 2019, and 2020. Yeah, and that, that, that is interesting because it suggests either, I mean, obviously this year coronavirus would make it difficult, but in the years of the diplomacy, it looks like the North Koreans decided to stop making a propaganda campaign over those who come back because i guess it wouldn't have fit very well with all the, the rapprochement and so on and that's not something unique to uh, to korea uh, when east and west germany were divided the east german government each year made very concerted uh, propaganda 
campaigns to encourage East German defectors to come back to East Germany and then uh, when they could, when they were, you know, uh, good talent, so to speak, would use them on uh, at press conferences to say how bad life was in the, in, the, uh, in the capitalist West and how hard it was and why they'd come back. But they interestingly, they would often use family members who remained back in East Germany mm-hmm. as leverage mm-hmm. to call their... Because, of course, between East and West Germany, you, you could make phone calls. So they would call their relatives or write to their relatives and say, look, can you come back? You know, your father's unwell or it's really sad here without you. Can you come back? Now, that kind of communication is much more difficult between North and South Korea. It's not impossible. So it could be that uh, these two men perhaps were were lured back because of pressure applied by the North Korean government on their family members. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what's going on with the restaurant workers, right? Mm. They asked some other agency to talk to these restaurant workers, to um, the families of the restaurant workers back in North Korea. They were arguing that they want their children back. Um, But then... Um, to me, what it, it seems different because in case of like Kim Nyon-hee, they were like very, very loud about wanting to go back to North Korea. And so remind our listeners who Kim Nyon-hee was. So, so she was a defector, but then she went on like South Korean media and um, all Did she come by TV. herself or as part of a, a larger group? Do we know? No, just herself. Okay. She argued that she wanted to go back to North Korea and that South Korean government should let her go. Mm. And there are multiple cases like these where defectors um, make it clear to the general public that they want to go back to North Korea, which sort of is suspicious, mm. you know. But then in these Wait, two, why is that suspicious? Well, because like if you, first of all, if you make it a, like a loud case that mm-hmm. you want to go back, the Ministry of Unification will be forced to take their passport away. Mm. Um, okay, so so by saying that you want to go back, it's almost a guarantee that you won't be allowed to go back. Exactly. So if you really just really want to go, you can no. just do it quietly, quietly secretly. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there are these cases. But then these two people who are detained in North Korea, they, after going back to North Korea, North Korean government didn't really make any propaganda campaign mm. saying that, oh, they wanted to come back to North Korea and so on and so forth. So maybe... Um, they were charged with similar cases with the other four, but then we just don't know because yeah. they're not talking about it. Is there a standard punishment or a standard crime, I should say, that uh, defectors who go back to North Korea are charged with? Uh, well, I mean, if, they, if they're willingly going back be- to go back to a better place, I, I mean, what we've seen under Kim Jong-un is they've been lauded publicly, but then we've also seen them disappear mostly so you know they would have been ideologically contaminated and i think would be quite hard to manage uh, for state security services for those who defected and were maybe viewed by the north koreans as criminals and then came back and were not potentially as sincere about the positives of wanting to come back to north korea i suspect they would just be treated you know quite harshly now, let's talk a bit more about the uh, the restaurant waitresses because we, we've brought them up uh, uh, you know, briefly a couple of times, but let's sort of see how do they uh, factor into the story. Chad, just give us the, the basics. Remind us again uh, how many of these restaurant workers there are and how many came to South Korea and under what circumstances. Yeah, so in April 2012, 2016 rather, we saw 12 young ladies and one male manager in his 40s coming to South Korea and uncharacteristically against all Ministry of Unification protocol, 
the um, Park Geun-hye government announced their uh, arrival and published a photo where they pixelated their um, uh, faces. Um, there was a lot of controversy about this because the North Koreans immediately cried foul. Uh, some in South Korea also raised questions because the idea of 12 young ladies all together as one deciding to leave uh, and coming to South Korea with consequences for all of their family and network w was quite hard to believe. Uh, and then after they arrived, a leftist South Korean legal group called Minbyun. Uh, Min Lawyers for Democratic Society. Yeah, they were effectively retained, I think, by their families in North Korea mm. to push on this case and find out whether or not they willingly came. And for whatever reason, the South Korean government made it very difficult for them to have any access to the young ladies. Um, and there was a huge debate in the human rights world at the time. And in, in fact, it still goes today as to whether or not it would be right for these young ladies to come to be made public, um, to talk about these things and be interrogated about their intentions and whether or not there was foul play. Uh, it was very, very controversial on, I think, all sides. Chongwin, have any of them spoken to South Korean media since uh, coming out? No, just the manager. JTBC, he, right? Right. I think one one or two of the girls spoke to JTBC and maybe Hankyore as well. That's what I but thought. It's very hard to... Well, I, we've tried to get hold of them as well. And it, it's this is the, the really w weird thing about South Korea is that it's really hard to get hold of people who have spent time in jail in North Korea or who have, who have mm. been these high-profile cases like the restaurant workers. You, Why do you think that's so difficult? I think it's a combination of pressure. From the government? Uh, yeah. Or it's down to they are worried about what may happen to people in North Korea as a result of them speaking. But just, I mean, just just to add to like yeah. the, the kind of wackiness of all of this, um, you know, since 2015, on three occasions... The North Koreans repatriate. Sorry, since 2013, mm. the North Koreans have, on four occasions, repatriated South Koreans, and we've never heard who these people are. We've never seen any interviews with any of them. Mm. They've all just kept their mouths shut. And I went to the DMZ last year in May, um, and the young uh, interpreter who was driving for me—I say young—he was about my age. Um, he told me that he'd worked on in Panmunjom in 2013 and I said what was the most interesting thing that ever happened and he said oh one day suddenly uh, the North Koreans sent six South Koreans back six. And, and our government knew nothing <laughs> they didn't know who they were they didn't know they were missing and I, I found that incredible and so we tried to look into finding these people yeah. but it's impossible do we know how they got there no there's literally there's no, no information when you've tried to through the con contacts with the government they wouldn't let us talk to them or they it's they're just we there are some photos of them crossing back to south korea hmm. that the media reported on but that's about it and then i found a story by you when you were at reuters of a man south korean being released in july i think of august 2018 and again like no information no about information. that so yeah, it's, it's just, it's so different to what happens in the West, which is these guys get released and then they'll do a sit down interview and, it, you know, you learn a lot. And uh, my question would be all these South Koreans who have been detained, do they know anything about 
the people that haven't come back yet. Ah, uh, right. Like they might have been in the same camp or the same prison with them. Right. Uh, now, I, I want to return. I, I realize it's been remiss of me. I have to go back to the uh, the 12 uh, waitresses in the restaurant. In what way could their case be connected with the case of these six or seven South Korean detainees in North Korea? I think the obvious one is the South Korean spy service. The South Korean spy service was blamed uh, in some circles as abducting or in incentivizing the restaurant workers to come. And it's also been linked in North Korean state media to all four, to at least four of the, the six who are detained. And we have seen the North Koreans say things like during early 2018, when they were talking about family reunions, they initially said the precondition would be you have to send the restaurant workers back how can we agree to do family reunions while you abduct mm. these ladies so you know the, what one of the only ways to resolve all of this uh, you know prisoner swaps detainee swaps uh, defectors that could be one way but it okay, would but be this wouldn't be a prisoner swap though right because these, be, these six women sorry these 12 women in south korea are not prisoners but well, you're from saying the North Korean view, they are. So they, they've that, been abducted illegally and they're here against their will. That's the, the sort of official North Korean view. Yeah. But that would be so difficult for any South Korean government to, to do. So the release of the six or seven South Korean prisoners in North Korea could be dependent upon uh, the 12 waitresses being sent back to North Korea. I don't think it would be dependent on, but I could see there being horse trading if mm. this ever came up again. Right. I think it's complicated, especially with the case of Ko Hyun-chul, like yeah. Ko Hyun-chul's release, because in the press conference that he did, when he's talking about all the South Koreans and U.S. activists that mm -hmm. asked him to kidnap all these children, they were they are talking about the 12 restaurant workers directly. Mm -hmm. So they are addressing the issue as related to why Ko Hyun-chul was detained in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, now, let's talk a bit more about the, the families in South Korea. Chad, you alluded to the, that they might be being muzzled, that the government could be putting pressure on them not to speak. Yeah, one um, of the one of the sort of religious community sources I spoke to said that they could be under pressure from uh, the spy service not to talk, uh, not to reveal details. Now, this let's be clear: the South Korean NIS has denied on every count that they're involved with any of this. Right? Mm -hmm. They also um, denied that they were anything to do with one of the Korean American detainees, uh, Tony Kim. Is that Tony Sangdok Kim? Yeah, who was released in 2018. He did a tell-all interview with Dag Young, our former correspondent, and said that he had specifically been working with the NIS and the CIA and that he was spying. So we have one case where the NIS said they were not involved and a guy coming out and saying, well, he was working for the NIS. Right. And what this religious community source told me is that these missionaries are working often uh, hand to mouth in the borderlands. They're, they're very poor. Uh, they don't have many resources. And he said what sometimes happens is um, basically uh, intelligence officers posing as wealthy uh, religious donors or deacons approach them and say look i'm willing to help you and at first the money flows quite plentifully but with no conditions and then as rapport is built they start being asked to do minor um, intelligence gathering uh, operations and he said that as a result of this they 
are basically initially unwittingly in involving themselves and as time goes on become more and more caught up in this and asked to do more and more and um, as a result there can be pressure on the family members not to say anything and this is just speculation on the religious sources uh, mind because if and when those people come back it's going to be huge embarrassment for intelligence services because they will be able to corroborate as the Korean American guy did um, that they were in fact working for certain spy services. So you're saying that the speculation is from your source in the religious community uh, is that uh, it's in the NIS's interest to them cut to ties there. with and to disavow uh, their spies and let them rot in North Korean jails because if they came back to South Korea they might say yeah, we were working for the NIS, and so it's best for them not to. Yeah. You've uh, obviously, we've had some uh, discussions on deep background with people in the intelligence community. Have any, has any of this been put to them? Yeah. Uh, one, one source uh, in the intelligence community told me of the Korean American guy who. Um, Kim Dong Chol. Yeah, Kim Dong Chol. When he came out, he said he'd been working for the NIS and CIA. My intelligence source said. No, he was just working for the NIS, but they impersonated CIA. And so, the, the, so an NIS member put him, passed himself off as a CIA uh, yeah. agent to make him think he was working for both agencies. That was that was what my source said. It, he said in his interview that the uh, the reason he did it was to help his country, both countries. Mm. He, he was a, a U.S. passport holder, but was right. born in South Korea. You know, it, we this is all definitely speculation, right? Um, but it is very, very strange that these that the government is so so quiet about these gentlemen. Um, and Thomas uh, from the UN, uh, Quintana, uh, he said that even if they are spies and they they were uh, up to no good collecting information and intelligence, they should still, under international law be provided consular access to South Korea and there should be communication with their family and there, there should be ways to check their their health situation. He said that the intelligence part doesn't change that. Does Mr. Quintana, the UN special reporter, does he know that South Korean consular access is impossible in North Korea ipso facto because North Korea doesn't recognize South Korea as a state? Yeah, he does know that, but they do talk about lots of other things. Mm. And I think if there was a will, there would be a way, right? Uh, it, it does remind me, uh, Chongmin, of a, a story um, that the uh, Hangyore magazine did back in 1999 on um, the one. Is that the right word? Am I thinking? Well, the, the, the people are... Uh, right. And so there, was a, there were a large number of these uh, supposed agents sent by South Korea into North Korea in the decades leading up to the Sunshine Period. Um, where many of them never came back, and uh, and some of them wanted recognition for uh, you know those that did come back, of course, were never allowed, allowed to talk about their uh, uh, what they had done for the South Korean government, uh, and and they even had um, some of them came and did a, a big demonstration here in front of City Hall with uh, setting butane canisters on fire and you know doing some incendiary devices. Uh, so this is not an, a new story, is it, that the South Korean government, just like the North Korean government, has always been sending agents across the border. Right. But this time it's a bit different because the NIS is denying their relations to these people. And I think they would have, wouldn't they have denied it back in the 70s, 80s and 90s as well? Just like North Korea time, never admitted uh, the Myanmar bombings, even to the death of that man a few years ago. And I think the other problem is um, if you take 
if if the North Korean claim is true that and and let's be honest, they they may have just been sharing very low level information for a bit of pocket money here and there, not really realizing what they're doing. Uh, but at the end of the day, from the North Korean perspective, that's crossing a big line, big red line. And so the North Koreans also have motivation to never let this get resolved because it sends a pretty striking message to any anyone else considering ever doing this again, that once you're detained, you're that's it. There's no chance of you coming home. And it may be a, a mechanism to deter missionaries and um, those in the in, intel field from getting too close to uh, North Korea. Right. What about foreign journalists going to North Korea? Chad, do you ever worry you know, about your own personal safety on, on trips that you've been to North Korea when you know, you've, uh, it's part of your job as a journalist to try to uncover things that the North Korean government doesn't want known? Yeah, I mean, we were given a rule book during our last trip um, which was extremely scary reading. We posted it online. It was about 20 pages long. And it basically said, if you're accused, if, if we catch you spying or collecting information or upsetting the will of the DPRK people, you know, life in, life in, in hard labor. Or, sorry, not life. It wasn't that extreme. It was 10 or 15 years. Um, but yeah, that, and that's a gray area because we, as journalists, we have to, our job is to collect information. The key difference is we publish it for everyone to, to read. But in doing that, you might publish stuff that people don't want to be uncovered and yeah. you could then be charged with spying. So it is concerning. Take, for example, the case of that uh, missionary who in 2010 said that, uh, you know, apparently he knew ahead of time that Kim Jong-il was going to pass through a certain railway station and he told somebody that happened to be from the NIS. <coughs> Uh, it seems like something that anyone could do. Yeah, and that is worrying. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd love to go back to North Korea. I, I mean, the next obvious time would be the October 10th military parade, but because of COVID, I don't think it's going to happen. Mm, looks unlikely. Now, I'm currently reading a book, uh, The King of Spies, about Donald Nichols, who's an American Air Force officer who ran his own spy rings during and after the Korean War. It's written by Blaine Harton, who'll be a guest on this podcast a couple of weeks from now. Uh, one sentence in that book sticks with me. As Nichols' operation moved into high gear in late 1951 and 1952, an acceptable loss rate for agents caught and killed or simply bugging out appears to have been 40%, 4-0. Wow. Do we have any idea how many NIS agents over the decades have been lost in North Korea? No idea. No. no. And I think the, you, you can ask the question the other way around. Yeah. Um, people forget that, I mean, during the process of writing this, we found uh, there was a uh, North Korean spy detained late last year in Jeju who had um, posed as a Buddhist monk, <laughs> come into the country uh, using the visa-free access that Jeju affords. And he, he was trying to infiltrate Buddhist circles. I don't know what he was doing, but he's been nabbed. And uh, you wonder also what are the protections for him? And how does he get home? Right, right. Because in South Korea, we had those long-term unconverted prisoners who, uh, if they weren't prepared to say, you know, to sign an oath of loyalty to the South Korean state, uh, they spent five, six, you know, four, five, six decades in South Korean prisons. Right. Uh, there was, of course, that, that one time in, in the early 2000s that a group of them were repatriated to North Korea. Yeah, what that person spoke to us about right. that, right? Rin Mo. Rin Mo, right. Yeah. Who, he, didn't he die? Uh, he oh, no, he's, he's been away. dead. He, he was sent back. He was sent back, but he, he uh, has died of some years ago. And yeah. apparently there was no quid, fo quid 
pro quo quo the north koreans got nothing the south koreans got nothing back from that so what's the best hope to get these six or seven south korean citizen prisoners out of north korea is it uh, a humanitarian approach through uh, multilateral organizations is it a prisoner swap john what do you think honestly i don't think that humanitarian approach will really work right now because the 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 reason for north korean government detaining these people, it seems that it's for ilbarbeke, which means a punishing one to make a message to many, many people mm. um, and, you know, warning against South Korean government and the missionary community and that they intend to keep them. And for humanitarian approach to work, it means that they have to um, admit that this detaining process was somehow against the humanitarian um, reasons. But then I, I don't think North Korean government will be persuaded by that. I think the family members were having very high hopes about Moon Jae-in becoming friendlier to Kim Jong-un. Right. And the leader-to-leader discussion about this, like Trump did before, yeah. would work. But then right now, if we look at the Korean peninsula, it's not also it's also not working at the moment. But it, it, it seems like this could have been really low-hanging fruit exactly. build goodwill in the second or the third summit i it just baffles me that moon decided to overlook it and in terms of what it would take now probably an, another summit with donald trump where donald trump decides to make this priority but then uh, for Donald Trump. But what's in it for him? Exactly. It's just like the abductee issue. Trump did mention the abductee issue for Abe, uh, we learn in John Bolton's book, during some of his communications with Kim Jong-un, but not, no resolution there. And how many Japanese abductees did you say do we still believe are in North Korea and alive today? I, I, I believe 17 in total officially, and 13 have officially been repatriated, so four, four left. Uh, but there are thought to be, as I said, dozens more. Um, but I mean, one of the uh, diplomat, I think it was Ambassador Lee, the former South Korean human rights ambassador, he said, uh, we just, the, the only hope is for the South Korean government to consistently bring this up and mention it publicly. Yeah, Lee Jong-un, he's the, one of the very few voices in South Korea who has spoken up publicly for... But then I wondered if it was if these gentlemen were working for the spy service of the Pak Geun Hye government, mm-hmm. would the Moon government feel any obligation to clean up the mess caused by a prior conservative government? I don't know. So you're saying it might actually require another South Korean conservative president to uh, to consistently raise this issue. I don't. I don't think any uh, Min Judang president is mm. going to make make a fuss about this. And also, what if they are dead? Yeah, this is what Kenneth Bay told you, right? right? So it would be very hard for them to discuss it, like whether or not it's about just telling them whether they're alive or not. It's just going to com- complicate the issue so much if there's no detainee left to send back home. Now, there, there have, of course, that does sound very dire and not hopeful, but there have been cases where South Korean citizens have died in North Korea and the North Korean Red Cross found a way to send a message to the South Korean Red Cross to tell the family, look, you know, um, your son or, or whatever has, has died uh, in the North. So in the absence of that, I guess we can only hope that they're still alive and that something will be done to get them out at some point. Yeah, it's pretty gloomy, though. Yeah. Gee, it's a sad note to end on, but an end we must. Uh, that is the end for our podcast today. So thank you once again, Chatter Carol and Jongmin Kim for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org. 
where you will always find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast, and to Arius Dare, our post-producer, post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises and will hopefully bring out my audio levels to that approaching Chad and Jongmin. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Check us out next time. <laughs>